0: we are listening to Anatomy One Hundred and Four: Unity of the Members, part of the Divine Physiology series, preached at and Baptist Church in the spring of two thousand and nine. And now, Pastor John, I have a confession: my wife and I were church hoppers. We, uh, we hopped from church to church. We've never stayed, this is the longest I've ever been in the same church in my married adult life. Now, <laughs> I'm like a recovering church hopper. But on the, it's, it's not really so bad as it was because we were compelled to be church hoppers because in the military, you, you hop. You're always hopping. In fact, there were times we were members of churches for six months, times we were members for a year, and it's difficult because you get somewhere and you and, you know you want to do all that thoughtful God-seeking searching that goes on to find the right church. Um, certainly you know how that is and you want to find that. But you, if you're only going to be somewhere for 18 months or for a year and a half, you can't search for 18 months or a year and a half or you haven't been very much good to anybody. And so we would kind of go through this move, search, settle, and by the time we'd kind of settled in, Ah, this is nice. It was time to prepare for transition again. But we were typically at a church just long enough, and we were, we were invested kind of people, so we would invest ourselves just deep enough that for whatever time we were at a church, we had the opportunity or the curse, depending on which church it was, to get to know the real church. You know what I mean, the real church. The church, this isn't the real church. This is service. But the real church is, what, is what's going on among us. And we would be there just long enough to, to kind of experience the real church. And what I mean by that is in the time we'd be there, something would happen. There'd be some thing that would happen in the life of the church that would kind of allow it to show its true colors, and we'd be there to watch it. Or our friends, our deep friends that we would make, they would leave, and so we we're kind of forced to, to see, well, are we here because of friends, or are we here for a more genuine reason, Or we'd realize that there's others in the church that will never leave. Despite all your prayers, they're there. (laughs) You know, or you're just there long enough that the excitement wears off. You learn the the pastor's rhythm, you know, that nothing surprises you from the sermons anymore. Whatever it is, we were there long enough to kind of learn the reality of church. Real church. not, Not fake church. And namely, the church... Every time, we're there, every time we've been in a church, even for a year or two years, we've come to realize that the church is the people. For better or worse, it's the people. That little adage about here's the church, here's the people at the door, that's, it is true. The church is the people. I can't do it. So imagine it done well, and, and, and that's good enough. But the church is the people, and, and it could be good, and it could be bad, and don't get me wrong. People are good. Most of my best friends are people. But... but the church is people, which means that we're going to encounter in church life things that just deal with people. Real church is real people living real lives. Which meant that typically by the time it was come for us to hop again to our next place, Andrea and I were ready. And part of that is, you know, when you're transitioning, there's whole this whole psychology of transitioning that exists. That when you, when you know you're moving or you're going to a new job or whatever your spirit and soul begins to just naturally let go of things that you know you have to let go of, and you begin to convince yourself you want to be where you're going in the first place. You know how all that works. So certainly that was working itself out, but there was also a little bit of this, whew, we just got to know those those people, and we had just kind of finally gotten the insight into how significant the job of real church is, and it is intimidating. Real church is intimidating. I think this is kind of the natural cycle of relationships. You know, whether it's a friend or a romance or membership in a church, you kind of find a new church or a new friend, and for that opening season, you're all about that person. They're your best friend, your blood brothers, and you're carving stuff in tree trunks. You're doing whatever it is to be like, this is the best, I love it. It's just all over, and then reality begins to set in, right? That's not real friendship, by the way. That's just kind of fancy. Real friendship, real marriage, real romance, real church is what happens when all of that wears off, and you begin to realize that for me to stay in this relationship requires that I sacrifice. For me to stay in this relationship requires that I it requires that I persist, even though I know that the person receiving it or the people receiving it aren't perfect and they don't deserve it. That's where real friendship happens, and that in my in my heart is where true church happens. This is, this is church. Real church is when you're here long enough that you see real people and you get real deep and you realize that we're not as good as we look in this room and you stay. That's real church. There's an advantage to just coming and going. You know, when you just come on Sundays and you sit, and then you leave before any real relationship's been tied, there's an advantage to that. The advantage is there's no strings attached to you. There's an advantage that you're in control. There's an advantage that you don't have to clean up a mess, and you certainly aren't going to make a mess because you're hardly here. And, and I will say, I, I have a foot, I understand where some of you are, and, and, and so I don't want to speak that same message to all of you, but I certainly want to speak that message to some of you that this is not real church. Real church is in that hallway. Real church is in the homes. Real church is happening in a lot of other places. We're doing something very important. We're we're fulfilling a a, a prescribed commandment about what church is, but real church is the people. Sitting and listening is not what it means to be a Christian. It certainly is not in the mind of Paul. Paul. Paul spends quite a bit of time trying to convince the churches that he's writing to what real church is. Churches always want to migrate to some, something less than what we're, we're told to. And so in most of the letters to the churches that Paul writes, he has this massively long list or discussion about the fact that church is the way that you and I and one another relate with one another. That's church. The way we relate with one another and the way that is all done in the name of Christ church and that's what Paul talks about not only in Ephesians but throughout many of his letters but he certainly does in Ephesians and it's, it's what we're going to spend our time on this morning in, in the fourth chapter so if you could open your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Ephesians we're going to kind of focus on the idea of how we get along with one another I haven't read any studies, but my hunch is that the number one reason that people leave churches relates to issues of one another. One another reasons. They may say they left for the message. They may say they left for this. Typically, my hunch is, is that we leave or we stay because of one another. And I think, I think Paul, Paul would affirm that in his writings. Uh, in, in the sermon series, this divine physiology that, that we're, we're talking about, Each Sunday, you can imagine, if the human body were under a microscope, we're continually zooming in at the heart of issues. So the first week, we kind of stood outside the body of Christ, and the only lesson was, kind of looking at this body, was Christ is the head and the church is the body. That was about as scientific as we got, was kind of. There's the body, and Christ is the head. And then the next couple weeks, we kind of begin to turn turn into the body and look at the systems of the body and how they relate. The fact that where there's systemic unity, we're all here in Christ for the same reason, which is we were saved by faith, by Christ, by grace. That's how we're in the body. That we didn't deserve to be here. There's nothing we, we did to be here. It isn't because of our own merits, it's because of Christ's love and the sacrifice that we're permitted to be here. And then we talked last week about because of that, we should be united in purpose. Because we have been saved, we should behave as though we were saved and focus ourselves on the purpose of Christ. Well, this morning we're going to talk about kind of this, uh, if you zoomed, you know the microscopes that have the, the three lenses? you know, And there's the really big lens that cracks the slide because it gets so close. You know, the super. I would call it the super lens if I was a biology teacher. Today we're going to use the super lens. Not the ultra lens, that's next Sunday. That is the super lens. We're going to look at the super lens, which is what does the body look like at the molecular level? At the U and the, the, the one cell here and the other cell here and how they relate. That's, that's kind of where the, the letter uh, to the Ephesians is going here. So, I'll, be, uh, I'll pick up in verse 17. We ended last week in verse 16. I'm going to read verses 17 of the fourth chapter all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 32. I encourage you, by the way, to be reading from your Bibles. And read along with me here. Paul writes, "...so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking." They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of, of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on your new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building up of others and according to, and according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. That's the end of the fourth chapter. Now, a lot can be said here. I'm going to remind you that we're doing a study of the church in Ephesians, not a study of Ephesians. So we're going to have to leave some things unsaid but what I will begin by saying is, is, is look at how Paul begins this conversation. He says, so I tell you this, in fact, I insist upon it. No longer live like the Gentiles. That's how Paul begins this conversation. And I would say this, he's kind of saying it in this way. So, if, you've been, if you say you've been saved by Christ, if you say you're in a new body, if you say that you have the Spirit working in you and God's presence around you and that you're responding to his call something has to change. You cannot continue to live like the world does. That's what Paul's saying. So if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, something's got to change. That's how he begins this. So I say to you, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. We have to look different. If all of this is really true, we have to look different. If Christ's blood really does save, if he really was resurrected, if the Spirit really is in us, we must be changed. I think a telltale sign of a false religion is that it does not require deep transformational change. If you just want to, if, if as a litmus test, if you want to look around and kind of gauge religions... A sign of a false religion is it does not demand deep transformational change. It typically tweaks the externals. Do this, go there, give this, and you're good. That's false religion right there. But true godly religion, the religion that God approves of, as Scripture would say, is religion that requires change of the deep you. Change of the you that is so deep That even sometimes you, you have you ever tried to pray and you get to the point where you say to the Lord, Lord, I don't even know how to honestly pray because I'm getting in my own way? That you, the you that gets in the way of you, that's the one that God desires to change. And you know, you know it's godly when you're confronted by the Spirit with something you know you should change, but you cannot change it yourself. That's a sign that you're not in a false religion. When you've encountered with the Spirit some part in you that has to change, but you go, I cannot do this myself. Because the grace that saves us is the grace that continues to save us. Right? We're not just saved by grace. We're preserved by grace, and we're changed by grace. It is the power of God that saved, that's it's also the power of God that changed. We're changed, and we're changing. Something has to change. The Lord requires these changes in our deep places. Now, in, in, in the following verses, he, uh, Paul begins to talk a little bit about issues of holiness. About putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And this is good, but we're going to push it to next week. Next week we're going to be using the ultra lens. We'll be inside the cell. Wondering what's going on inside of the individual cell. But today, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna push that off for the second, and we're going to go to verse 25, where Paul begins to kind of reflect on community virtues. These virtues and these issues of, of character that deal with how we engage with one another. And so what we see here from 29 all the way to 32 is kind of a list of vices and virtues. Paul gives you vice... And he gives you a virtue. So he says, put off falsehood. Tell the truth. See how that works? In your anger, do not sin. In fact, don't go to bed angry. He says, stop stealing. And then what? Give generously to those in need. Don't, don't have unwholesome speech among you. Rather, speak so as to build people up as, you, as they need and to those who might listen. Listen. And then he says, he kind of summarizes, he kind of has this full sentence in the end of, get rid of your bitterness and rage and your malice and all of these things. Set those aside and rather use loving kindness and compassion and forgive as Christ forgave you. That's verse 32. So he kind of builds this this picture here of vices and virtues alongside one another. And it's kind of a fruit of the spirit list. It's not an exhaustive fruit of the spirit list. It's just indicative of fruits of the spirit. And he does this in many of his letters. Turn a few pages, if you don't mind, to Philippians chapter 2. You'll see the same pattern again. Chapter 2, verse 1. It should just be like a few pages over. Man, some of you, it's like 50 pages over. What volume are you guys in here? Chapter 2, verse 1, I'll read a first few, a, uh, verses 1 through 4. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with His Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do, not, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This kind of starts the same way. He says, Paul says in, in Ephesians, he gives this huge image of us coming into the body and says, So, stop living like the Gentiles do. Rather, live in harm, harmony and unity with one another. And he says the same thing in Philippians. He says, if, you, if you're a Christian, let me just boil it down. If you're a Christian, you will live in harmony and you will seek peace and unity with other believers. That's the fruit of being a Christian. This is If you want a, f- a few more pages, I'm, I, if I dare say so, a few more pages over to Colossians chapter 3. And by the way, it ha- these are just a few pages from one another, so we're going to read these. But it's all over the New Testament and the Old Testament. But this is Colossians chapter 3. It says the same thing in many more words. What I'd like to do is I'm going to read you the first sentence of each paragraph all the way through verse 15. And you'll see the same argument being built up. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That was like the first two weeks of the sermon series. Number 2, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people... Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Do you see how Paul continually is hammering on this issue of us seeking real church, which isn't this? Real church is the way we show the fruits of the Spirit. To one another. That's real church. Real church is a lot harder. Than fake church. Now. I know some of you. Are not ready to get to real church. And I don't know what to say about that. I I, want to describe to you. I at least want to convince you right now. That this is. This here. While good. Is not real church. Real church is not where you come and you kind of receive and then you leave. It's where you give and you receive from one another. And it's, it's like this. Imagine you're invited to a birthday party of someone you don't know. That's probably happened to us. We, even if it's parents, you've been somewhere and you don't even know the parents or the kid. You're just there. Right? And you go to this birthday party and there's all these fun things to do. There's piñatas and there's there's party favors and the things that's, you know, and they go in and out, and there's even pin the tail on the whatever the motif of the party is at the time, all of that's happening, right? And so you can be at this party that you were invited to, you don't know anybody, and you can be having a great time, but if you don't know the birthday boy, you're missing the party. I mean, the essence of a birthday party is the celebration of that child's life growing. Right? And that's why, that's why parents could care less about all that stuff, because they're just celebrating the birthday of their child. I mean, they're deeply invested in this child's life. They put all this labor in. They're not the ones pulling strings on pinatas. They're the ones picking up wrapping paper. Because for them, the birthday is so much more meaningful because of the relationship that's there. And I think some of us are, 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 are involved in a, in a church birthday party of someone we don't really know. We come. We enjoy what's offered. We receive it. It's all good. It's all good It's all good elements of church life. So it should feel right. I'm just telling you that real church is better. This should feel good, but real church is harder and real church is better. Okay. I want us to take a second. This is what often happens, at least in my life, is after we say this, we kind of, Brow, or blow over these uh, fruits of the spirit lists. We kind of get to them in scripture and we kind of go, here's the vice list, yada, yada, yada. And then you get to the good list, here's the good list, yada, yada, yada. And then you keep reading. I want us to, I want to kind of stem the tide of that by spending a little bit of time looking at the actual, some of the virtues, just some of them. We'll spend a little time just to at least break the habit of passing them by so quickly. And so if you look at verse 25, here's one of the fruits of the spirit that we are called to live out with one another. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we, for we are all members of one body. That's, that's what's said to us about truth. Put off falsehood. Now, I think the church is not very good about this. By the way, I think this is a great church, so I'm speaking in general. You guys are, take two gold stars and a smelly sticker home with you today. This is a good church, right? But this, we, every church is not Christ. No church is Christ. We're conforming to his image, So we ought to still wrestle with these ideas. But this idea of put off falsehood and speak truthfully, I do not think in general the church does this well. I think in general that we have become very good at putting on fake smiles and kind of putting makeup over ourselves so that when we come here on Sundays, we, we present a false image of ourselves. When you act like nothing's going wrong, when stuff is going wrong, you are speaking falsehood. If you're supposed to be honest with people, what people besides this are you supposed to be honest with? Likewise, you ought to be ready to receive someone's honesty when it finally comes out. When you finally give your kind of, hey, how's it going, and they say, not good, you need to, re- you need to foster yourself a gentleness to stop and listen and pray with and become part of, because real church, that's what real church does. But we speak falsehood all the time, we kind of put on our plastic smile, we kind of act like nothing's going wrong, when when I know and you know that there's wrong stuff going on all over the place. There is no such thing as a normal family. You are not the only abnormal family. We are all abnormal. And we need to speak that truthfully. And some of us, we sit here and we watch, we just know. They won't say it, but we know. We're watching this this family or this person fall off the cliff. And we kind of go, whew, I wish somebody would speak into their lives. Maybe John will preach next Sunday. (laughs) You're the real church. This is the real church. Your opportunity to speak truthfully to his life is the real church. In my mind, silence is falsehood. What would Jesus say? if he knew that you knew that that person needed you and you did nothing. Speak the truth. That's number one. By the way, uh, there's this early church writer, his name's Jerome. He says it this way, speaking of the body of Christ, he says the eyes of the body is what sees the cliff and calls it out to save it. And I think you need to see yourself that way, that you may be the eyes of the of this body that sees something and that you need to be the one to intercede and preserve it in time of danger. Stealing. Stop stealing and give. Oh, I'm sorry. In your anger, do not sin. That's the next one, right? In your anger, do not sin. Now, this is an interesting one because it doesn't say don't be angry. It says in your anger, don't sin. And oftentimes you kind of go, anger is sinful. I don't think it's sinful. I think there's a side of anger that we we need to recognize is not sinful. And it's the side of us that recognizes when there's injustice. When something happens and you have this righteous indignation in you, right, that kind of materializes his anger, that in itself is not evil. That's, that's the God in you recognizing life. When you see something wrong or unjust or cruel, and, you, and something rises up in you that says, that's wrong. I think that's why Jesus overturns the tables in the temple. It's his righteous indignation that's coming out, and it's an anger, but it's not sin because it turns into sin when we allow that anger to control us. It's one thing to have righteous indignation. It's another thing to be captured by this anger. And so Paul's Paul's rule of thumb, if you might want to call it that, his, his recommendation to you is in order to keep sin from controlling you, don't allow it to follow you through the night. If you control it, then be able to give it up before you put your head down on your pillow. I, I think that's a, a good rule of thumb. I think that's a good way to suggest to you that you know if anger has control of you if you go to sleep with it. And you, you and I both know that when we sleep, our anger, we don't sleep it off. It's like plaque on your teeth. It just grows overnight. That's why we give the devil a foothold when we shut our mind down and go to sleep with something like that in our hearts, that's a green light for Satan just to enter in and carve out and shape us. Because we've given ourselves over to anger. But Paul says, no. if, if, if You can anger, but in your anger don't sin. And you'll know if this anger that you have is righteous or unrighteous if you can or cannot give it to the Lord by the time you go to bed. That's your, that's your test. And I would say it also shows a lack of faith in Christ we hold on to this anger. It shows that we don't believe that God will deal with this issue. It shows that we don't believe that God's in control. We have all of this anger that we hold to ourselves. We're saying, God is not just, therefore I have to do something about it. Give it to the Lord. Give it to that, let that be your offering to Christ before you go to sleep. If, you can't, if you're too angry to pray, just give it to the Lord. And that's prayer enough for Christ. Just give it up. The next one. Stop stealing, but give. I'm not going to say much about this except to ask you, how are you a giver in this community? Just work on answering that question. Have no unwholesome talk. Let's look at that one for a second. No unwholesome talk. But it says, but only what is helpful for the building up of others in accordance with their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Now, it's funny, it says that. No unwholesome talk, but then it says, speak so as to build up others. A lot of us, we may be able to con- uh, conquer this un- no unwholesome talk, but we're pretty good at building up others according to our needs. That's a, let me tell you what would make you a better person in my life if you tweaked this or did that. He says, no, the reason you should speak is to build up others according to their needs, not to make your life better, but to make their life better. And he gives a second condition, he says, to those who will listen. So we, if just because we're the answer man, and we're walking around with all these answers for everybody else's lives according to their needs, if they're not ready to receive it, if they're not ready to listen, don't waste it. Because you may harden them for the, to the very word of truth that one day might speak. Have you ever done that or seen that where, where someone's heard the truth so many times that they're hard to it and now they can no longer receive it even if their heart begins to soften? So don't waste it on people who aren't ready to hear. Have their needs and their will and the Lord's will in mind. And then the last few, it's just kind of this, this Paul just kind of bundles them together and we'll just, we're not going to spend time on this one. It's a general summary of this, put away your wrath and your anger and take on compassion and kind-heartedness, and love and forgiveness. Now, uh, I'm going to make about two comments about this general list. The first is, here's this list, again, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's this list of the fruits of the Spirit, and this is what I think the church does. Whenever we're starting to think about our role in the church, we're very good at thinking about, what's my gift? We're very gift-oriented, aren't we? Where am I supposed what's my talent where am I supposed to fit what am I supposed to do that's the question whenever we're talking church business and investment that's what we ask and i think christians have this illness of mistaking the gift of the spirit for the fruit of the spirit i don't know what your gift is you don't know what your gift is the spirit may not have even decided what your gift is yet the spirit decides your gift in accordance to the needs of the church as the spirit sees fit you have nothing to do with it it's a gift The fruits of the Spirit, however, you are responsible to cultivate. Do you see the difference? You have to, you must display the fruits of the Spirit. If you're in Christ, if the tree is planted in good soil, it will bear fruit. Requirement, that's how you know your salvation, James would say. Are you bearing fruit or not? The fruits of the Spirit are in your hands. For you to work out with the Lord. For you to seek the Lord and for Him to seek you. And for you to work with the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit is outside of your hands. It's out there. It comes to you whether you're righteous or not in some cases. The gift of the Spirit is not an indication of righteousness. The fruits of the Spirit are righteous. And we can have a highly gifted church and no fruits and the church is dead. It's a talent show. That's all it is. We don't have time to read it, but in 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 through 14, is this conversation about gifts of the Spirit. The church in Corinth was wrapped up in the gifts. What's my gift? I want to be able to shine in front of the other people. And so Paul's writing to them going, calm down about the gifts. Calm down. And then in chapter 13, he says this. In fact, let me tell you a more perfect way. Right? He says, if I... If I have the gift of tongues, and if I have prophecy, and if I, if I can divine all truth, and if I can heal, and if I have all these things but I have not love, I am nothing. I'm a resounding gong, I'm a clanging cymbal, I'm worthless. Paul says the gifts are worthless if they're not followed up with the fruits of love. So don't mistake the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. The fruits are critical for the life of the church. And here's the second thing, and the final thing I'll share with you this morning. This room is the wrong place for you to th- try to think, this is where I need to display the fruits of my spirit. Because you guys are just sta- sitting there looking at me. And unless your gift is singing, you're not doing much in this room. It- it's just not happening. And it- it's-, it's a fallacy, it's a myth to think that this is sufficient church. I wish I could say it some other way. This I- This is important. I, my, my week leads to this time, but this is not sufficient church. Sufficient church is living your lives out with somebody else, some other Christians in community with Christ. And that doesn't happen here. That happens in Sunday school, that happens in life groups, that happens in Bible studies, it happens in other small groups. You need to be in something like that. You need to invent one if you don't like any of the ones we have. You need to be invested. I don't know how else to say it. I'm just trying to figure out a way that you can show the fruits of the Spirit in the body of Christ in something other than this one hour on Sunday. When you're in a life group and it gets hard, it is not because your life group's broken, it's because you finally got to real church. When you're in a life group finally where you're like, that person really annoys me, welcome to real church. That's a welcome from the Spirit to say you finally got to a place where your faith can be measured. If we wanted to live, the the life we desire, we desire this kind of a life group with no problems or church with no problems, that's like desiring a Garden of Eden with no tree. There's no way to worship God if we want to do what we are allowed to do all the time. We need to be in a place where we do something for no other reason than the fact that we remember where we once were and we acknowledge where we are now, and we do it in the name of Jesus Christ. That is real church. And so let me close with this. It's from Philippians. I'll read it again. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If you have any comfort in his love, if you've had fellowship with the Spirit or felt the tenderness and the compassion of Christ, if you have any of that, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, and do nothing out of selfish ambition.